Good morning. I'm going to be reading from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 12. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Thank you, Joelle. Well, that's a tough question to consider, isn't it? What would you do if you knew you only had 30 days to live? Certainly there is nothing quite like imminent death to clarify what really matters in life. And the trouble with life, of course, is that We never really know how much time we have. We've seen the pictures and the videos from the unbelievable disaster in Japan that Juliana was talking about. And for way too many, death came very suddenly on that day. Of course, if knowing when we might die helps us focus on what really matters, why not focus on what really matters now? Last week, Pastor Ken introduced us to Timothy, who had been mentored by the Apostle Paul, as we looked at 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. Today, as we continue our series of messages based on the letters that the Apostle Apostle Paul wrote to churches and individuals, we're going to look at 2 Timothy. As the Apostle Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy, he was in a Roman prison awaiting death. The year was about 64 to 65 AD, and although death for Paul was imminent, he took the time to write another letter to Timothy. And while death may have been looming for Paul, the timing, of course, was uncertain. And so Paul writes to Timothy and asks him if he's able to come for one final visit before Paul is executed. The letter has a very practical purpose. In it, you will find clues to what this purpose was. If Timothy was able to get to visit Paul in prison, Paul asked him to bring his cloak, uh, some extra warm clothes, because winter was approaching. 
And he says, and bring my books and parchments with me. Which is an interesting thing, because here he is near the end of his life, but you would see, it seems that Paul intends to keep studying and writing until the very end. <clears throat> but the letter is also very personal. I hope you heard that as Joel read from these opening verses in chapter 1. Timothy was a close and uh, friend and a, and a treasured co-worker of Paul's. He was a key member of Paul's trusted inner circle. Paul had sent Timothy on frequent missions, including assigning him to be pastor of the church in Ephesus. Timothy, in fact, is identified as co-author of six of Paul's letters. Really, this close relationship that they had. And throughout Paul's letters, you get the sense that, that Timothy is very specially valued. Paul considers him like a son. In fact, he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So he identifies himself as the author. And then he says to Timothy, my dear son. Elsewhere in writing, I believe, to the Philippians, he says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. And so certainly Paul had very high praise for Timothy. And this specific letter is really an encouragement to Timothy to persevere in the gospel in spite of suffering and to continue the fight of faith. This is Paul's final letter. And I believe he was thinking about what really matters. As he was writing, he must have been thinking, you know, I really want to see Timothy again, but if I don't, what would I want him to know? What would I want Timothy to pay special attention to for the rest of his life and ministry? These are, if you will, the last words from a spiritual father, and they carry some weight. And for us today, I hope that they will help us consider what really matters. So here's what really matters. And what I decided to do is just kind of pick something from each of the four chapters that kind of jumped out at me. And again, as we said, in all of these letters, there's so much stuff here. You could do a whole series of messages. And so we're kind of flying over it at uh, 20 to 30,000 feet. But I think the first thing that we get a glimpse of what Paul wants to pass on to Timothy. As he says, Timothy, be others-oriented. Think of others first. And this is not unusual for Paul to say this, but he, he makes this emphasis, I believe, right in this very first chapter. You see, our natural self tends to make us selfish. We are usually more concerned about ourselves than we are others. And the encouragement to others, to being others-oriented, is found throughout the Bible. And here in this first chapter of 2 Timothy, I believe this other's orientation is seen in the example of the Apostle Paul himself and in the life and character of a, sorry, of a character that we're introduced to in verse 16 in this opening chapter, a man by the name of Anisiphorus. And we'll come back to him in a, in a second. But just remember now, Paul is in prison. He's chained like a criminal. And these were certainly less than ideal circumstances. He could have, in fact, you might even say he had the right to maybe have his own little pity party. He could have written about the deplorable conditions. Instead, his opening words are, my dear son, I thank God for you. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. And then he goes on to say, I've been reminded of your sincere faith. 
which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. In other words, Timothy, you have a sincere faith. It's part of a godly heritage that's been passed down through the generations to you. And Timothy, you have a significant gift given to you to be used for kingdom purposes. Don't hold anything back, Timothy. These must have been incredibly encouraging words for Timothy to hear. You know, it struck me just how much our words matter. We can choose our words to encourage, to build up, to honor. Or we can choose you to use words that tear down, that hurt, that dishonor and disrespect others. When we really think of the, the weight of our words, I think we would be way more careful with how we speak. We'd have that filter highly tuned to a sensitivity that says, you know what, i got to be really careful how I speak to my spouse or my children or my co-workers or whoever I may come in, in contact with. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 29, Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Did you catch that? Let everything you say be good and helpful. There's the filter, right? Is what I'm about to say going to be good and helpful for the person that's going to receive this? And so Paul demonstrates, I think, in this this other's orientation through our words and how we think about others and how we speak to them. But he also demonstrates this other's orientation through our actions, And Paul gives Timothy an example. Actually, he gives him two examples. The first is a negative one. He talks about in verse verse 15, he says, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, which doesn't seem very promising and encouraging. And then he singles out two guys, which I'm not really sure why he does, but he says, uh, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. It was interesting that these two guys would be mentioned, and there's no other mention of them anywhere throughout the Bible. How sad to have your legacy be one of being a deserter. Simple reminder to us that we are all leaving a legacy, and it can be a negative one, or it can be a positive one. And so he moves from talking about these negative ones to this, this uh, gentleman that I mentioned earlier, Anisiphorus. Name means bringer of profit. Isn't that great? To have your name mean bringer of profit. It's like Barnabas meaning son of encouragement. But here this guy's name means bringer of profit. I am going to bring something of benefit. And what did he do? Paul writes of him. He says that he often refreshed me. Okay, So he's in prison. What did he do? Maybe he brought him water. He brought him warm clothes, blanket, whatever he could bring. He refreshed him. It was an encouragement to, to Paul. And he says, he was not ashamed of my chains. You know, he didn't run and hide. He didn't desert like everyone else. Oh, the guy that, that, that's been teaching us and we've been following is in prison. So let's, let's just back away. No, he, he came. He wasn't ashamed of his chains. In fact, he says that he, he searched hard for me until he found me. 
He persevered. He didn't give up. He, he was going to be so, uh, he, he wanted to bring this prophet. He wanted to bring benefit to, to, uh, to Paul. And so he didn't give up looking for him. And Paul just says, he helped me in many ways. Okay. And it just is an example, I think, of this, this caring spirit, this caring attitude that Anisiphorus had. And the example that Paul gives Timothy, I think, really serves as an encouragement to each of us to be faithful in meeting the needs of others. It really matters that we are others oriented. And I had to think about this myself, and it's a challenge for me. But I thought about how blessed I am and about how there are so many people in my life that are examples of this others orientation. I'm humbled by it. I'm often a recipient of it. And I realize that, you know, it really matters that we think of others first. Well, as we move into chapter two, we see something else that really matters. In a word, it's discipleship. Discipleship. You see, discipleship is basically about learning what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. And that whatever it takes, that we need to then also pass this on. And in verse 2, there's this important, in chapter 2 and verse 2, there's this important verse. He says, and the things you've heard me say, so Paul's saying it to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. And so Paul is identifying that there's this succession of this teaching that takes place. That throughout the generations, there's this passing of this faith along. And so it goes from, from, uh, from the apostles to, to Paul and from Paul to Timothy. From Timothy, then he says, to reliable men, reliable men to others, okay? And so on and so on. And each of us, when we think about it, somewhere probably along the journey, there have been people in our lives that have passed the faith on to us in some ways. This succession of generations. You think about it. Who introduced me to Christ? Who maybe invited me to church for the first time? Maybe it was your parents, but maybe it was a close friend as you came to faith later, later in life. Okay? But there's been somebody that passed the faith on to you. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, it's important that not only are you a disciple of Jesus, but that you are also a discipler. That you find somebody that you can encourage along in the journey of faith. It was interesting, my very first Sunday at TCC, we were just kind of visiting, kind of under the cover. And I don't know if you've heard the story or or know this truth, but um, about 20 years ago, I was Brad Liskey's youth pastor. So that dates me uh, significantly more than than Brad, although I was a very young youth pastor at the time. Um, But, you know, it's so cool for me to come back like 20 years later and to serve on the same elder board as Brad and to see him giving leadership as an elder and as as a worship leader. And and that first Sunday that I referred to, Brad, if you uh, don't know this, was also a youth pastor in Camrose and in Leduc, right? And in Camrose, he was the youth pastor to Steve Carlson, who attends TCC as well. And that first Sunday, I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is so cool because I think, at least in some small way, I I was an encouragement to Brad and Brad was an encouragement to, to Steve. And it was just pictured right around this table. We had brunch together. And that's what Paul's talking about, is that, that we have a responsibility not only to, to be concerned about learning about what it means to follow Jesus, but then passing that along. 
Anyone who's ever watched a, a relay race or been in a relay race understands the importance of taking that baton and making sure that exchange is done well. You've got a limited time frame for where that exchange needs to take place before the runner can run the next 100 meters or 400 meters. And then he has to pass that on as well. And so it's really important that we understand that that's a good metaphor for us to understand about passing on this baton. In fact, I got a little show and tell this morning. A baton. And... Uh, you may not see this from back there, but it says Second Timothy 2 2 uh, on it, and just uh, some letters on here. And the significance of this is that it belonged to my brother in law, Tina's brother, who passed away at 34. And he was a youth pastor in California. And when we went out as a family for the, for the funeral, they, um, we were, of course, going through his belongings. And I don't know the whole story behind why Jim had this. But I have a sense that it was when he was licensed into ministry or ordained that they gave him this. In fact, it sits on a little wooden block in my office that has this verse printed on it. And it's a constant reminder of this is what we're doing. We're passing on the baton of faith. And Paul uses some really significant words there. He says, entrust it. Well, when you put something in trust to someone else, it's for safekeeping. This is a valuable thing that we're passing on. And he says these need to not just be entrusted, but it needs to be entrusted then to reliable men and women. People who are qualified, competent, they have a focus that you can count on them because you're going to pass this on and you can count on them to run the next leg with it and then pass it on and pass it on. And so I want this to be a little bit of an object lesson. I'm going to I want this just to pass through as I continue to speak. I'll pass it to Ken and then just make it way through there. And when you're passing it on, I want you to think about something. What am I passing on with my life to my children or my spouse or whoever it is? So don't just kind of just throw it through the aisle. Just take a second and think about what's that mean to pass your faith along? But that's exactly what Paul is saying in these verses. It's important to pass on our faith. And he goes on to tell Timothy what it's going to take to follow Jesus. To be a disciple of his, says, he says, first of all, it requires strength. In verse 1, he says, be strong, Timothy. You see, Timothy was identified elsewhere that he was fairly young. He was probably somewhat timid. In fact, remember, you might have read the verse there that, that you caught that verse. Where he, said, he didn't give us a spirit of timidity. Okay? So he tended maybe to hold back a little bit. But no, Timothy, don't, don't be timid and don't be fearful. Be strong, Timothy. And he says, Timothy, be strong in yourself. You know, count on yourself. No, he makes it very clear that, Timothy, our strength comes from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, we're saved by grace, but then it's grace that empowers our lives. And it's not just about working harder or being stronger, depending more on ourselves. It's depending on God and the work that he does in our lives. But not only does it require strength, it requires endurance. In verse 3, he says, endure hardship. And how, you know, what does that mean? He right away helps us to, to get a mental picture of this. He says, like a good soldier. So now think a military image here. What does a good soldier do? What identifies a good soldier? A good soldier is one who's obedient. One who says, yes, sir. The one who's prepared to get up, to run, to take instructions, to make it happen. 
And more importantly, not only is he so focused on the task at hand, he doesn't get entangled or tied up in civilian affairs. He doesn't get involved in that stuff. He stays on course and stays focused. And he endures because he wants to please, he says, his commanding officer. That's his focus. But not only does it take strength and endurance, it also takes discipline. Because he uses then another imagery, not just for military, but an athletic imagery. Paul loves to do this. And I think it's a good one for us because we can wrap our minds around it fairly easy as well. He says he competes as an athlete. Okay? And if you just think about you, some of you I know are, are training for half marathons and marathons and all of these kind of things. But, but what are you willing to endure? Or, or an athlete that is competing at a high level, what are they willing to endure? They make sure they get proper sleep, that they get enough sleep, they get the right amount of exercise, they have routine. Oftentimes it's very strenuous, it's painful, there's lots of activity involved. And he says, not only does it require that kind of discipline, he also said that they compete according to the rules. In other words, it has less to do with success and more with conformity to the rules. And all of us have seen how a gold medal can be a short-lived victory in the Olympics because someone was found cheating. And so he says you're under obligation, basically, to keep the rules. Well, what rules? Well, these are God's rules. And it's just a reminder that, very important for us to understand, that, that keeping rules doesn't save us. But wanting to do what God calls us to do, wanting to please our commanding officer, as Paul says here, helps us remind her that, that this is evidence that we are saved. It's evidence of God's grace in our life because we actually want to stay um, on track. And so we have here that this disciple is obedient, he's disciplined, he endures hardship and suffering. And what's interesting is, remember Paul's passing this on, he's not saying, do this, I never did this, no makes it very clear that he himself did this. And in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says at the end there, he says, I have fought the good fight. Okay, there's a military imagery. I have finished the race. There's the athletic imagery. And I have remained faithful. I have endured. But he's not finished yet. Because not only does it require strength, endurance, discipline, it also requires hard work. And he uses another analogy there of the hardworking farmer, right? You think of anyone that's been involved in agricultural work and the kind of patience it requires and the hard work too. In Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, A sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks out and finds nothing. What a great little proverb, right? It's just a sense of going, you know, the guy who thinks, oh, I, I don't really feel like getting out in those fields this morning and you know, just kick back, take it easy. I don't think I need to do this right now. And then comes fall expecting to reap a harvest. Well, guess what? It's not there because he didn't put in the hard work. And so there is hard work involved in being a disciple of Christ. Verse 7, I think, is just a, a great little reminder there in chapter 2. He says, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Just think about this. Reflect on it. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. Does any of that sound easy or convenient? Can we just passively follow Jesus without putting in any of the effort? And the implication here is that it does involve hard work and sometimes even suffering. But you've heard it said, right? No pain, no 
gain. And I think that applies to discipleship as well. Not that we're looking to physically harm ourselves. That's not what I'm getting. But the sense that, that there needs to be this focus on this isn't just an easy walk in the park. It takes effort on our part as well. Well, discipleship also implies that we would pursue holiness. He says later on in chapter 2 that we would flee the evil desires of youth. Pretty interesting phrase, isn't it? We'd run away from the evil desires of youth. Do you ever think about what the evil desires of youth are? Think back to what you were 18, what you were like when you were 18. Some of you aren't there yet, or you are there right now. So maybe that's too personal. But, you know, the whole point of it is saying, you know, when we think back to that time, maybe we were concerned about pleasure and our personal comforts. Maybe we were even looking to, you know, we're trying to establish ourselves, and there's an emphasis on power, looking out for ourselves. Maybe even then it was all about possessions, having it all, you know. I remember having this poster that I, that I always liked, that I wanted to get, because this is when I was going into university, ministry was far from my mind, and it was a kind of a beautiful house, five-car garage, and there's like a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, a, you know, a Porsche, or something else, and, it, and I think it's actually said, the benefits of higher education, you know, and, uh, and um, you know, but, the, you know, that, that's what we kind of put up on our walls when we're teenagers sometimes, and we think that's what we want. Well, Paul says, you know what? No, you don't. Those are the evil desires of of youth. Run away from that and run after or pursue, he says, righteousness, right? What does that mean? Well, just that we're studying and living the Bible. Pursue faith. Okay, these are the important things where there's faithfulness and integrity and loyalty. Pursue love. This is a a good focus for us. that That we recognize this is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's a conscious act as well. Pursue peace, right? In the video that we saw, there was a couple of references to, you know, if I had 30 days to live, I would want to make things right with the people that I'm not right with. So if you're not right with someone, then why not make an effort now? Because we never know, right? But those are the important things that matter. Righteousness, faith, love, peace. And it's a ruthless rejection of all those evil desires of youth. It's a relentless pursuit of these things that we run away from some and run after. And so Timothy says, it really matters that you are others-oriented and that you focus on discipleship. You know what else really matters, Timothy? The Bible. The Bible really matters because it provides stability in a shaky world. It it becomes a reference point. Because in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. But mark this, he says. In other words, he says, like, get a hold of this. It's not that this might happen. It will happen. There will be this thing. And then he goes into this very graphic list. And I'm not going to get into the detail there, but all that to say is that that is what happens when God's truth is rejected. And that is why Scripture is so important. We throw out the word, and that is what you get. Look at, uh, maybe I'll touch on a few. The, uh, you know, people will be lovers of themselves, okay? Very different from this other's orientation. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. It's not a pleasant list, is it? But in essence, that's what happens when we don't understand the importance of God's Word. It's just total chaos. We don't know the difference between right and wrong. 
Timothy says you are to be different. Okay? There's a counter-cultural effort, effort, uh, emphasis here in verse 10. He says, you, however, in contrast to all of this, and he gives himself as an example. He says, but Timothy, you're to be different. And then we come to these really significant verses in verse 14. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Okay, there, do you see that sense again? He, he, he knows that this, he learned this from his mother and his grandmother that we're introduced to earlier. Paul continued to that. These were all people that he respected. And he says, Paul, you, you know, you respect their truth. You respect their lives and you respect their truth. And so continue to live in light of that. Continue to learn it. Continue in it. Stay on it. And then he says, Verse 16, probably one that maybe if we spent time in Sunday school, we've memorized all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And it's just a reminder that God breathed scripture into being that these weren't just Paul's words that he wrote in a letter to Timothy. These were inspired words by the Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul wrote down, sent it as a, uh, to Timothy, and then it has been preserved through all of, these, all of these generations. Ancient words that we sang about this morning, ever true, okay? They don't change their truth, changing me and changing you, because that's what God's Word does to us. It says that God's word makes people wise for salvation. That when we read the Bible and we understand the truth of the gospel, that's how we come to faith in in Christ. It teaches the truth about God, about ourselves, about our need. It even says that it issues warnings and rebukes. In other words, do not do this. And then it says it corrects, though. Do this. In other words, if that's the, the wrong thing, then it sets us on the right thing. Right? It's like getting that, you know, when, when our kids come home and they've had a spelling test and it's right, it's right, it's right, it's wrong, it's right. And what's the point? We just go, oh, that's okay. You, you win some, you lose some, don't worry about it, right? No, we want to correct it so that they get it right the next time. And that's what, the, that's what God's Word does. It corrects us so that we get it right the next time. And then lastly, it says that it's also training in righteousness. And so what God's word will help instruct and build up. There's a very positive sense here about what God's word does. And it's just a reminder that the Bible really matters. Not only because it gives a reference point in a godless culture, but because it leads people to Christ and then on to maturity and then on to usefulness. And if we're going to be disciples, as I talked about earlier, then we need to be people who are studying the word and understanding what it means. Because he says, if we do all that, then we're going to be thoroughly equipped, complete, capable, and proficient in everything that we're called to do. So very practically speaking, what does it mean for us? It means that we need to make reading the Bible a high priority. It means meditating on it. I read a great quote that said, reading the Bible without meditating on it is like eating without swallowing. Right? And, I, and it caught me because I, I realized that some of my tendency sometimes is I just need to do the reading and check off the list for today. And I haven't taken the time to just sit and think and find that verse and meditate on it. And what does that mean? And how am I going to live that out today? And we memorize it. J.I. Packer once said, If I were the devil, one of my first aims 
would be to stop folk from digging in the Bible. Okay? So it's important. The Bible really matters. We can base our life on it. And lastly, I believe that Paul is reminding Timothy that it's important to have a purposeful mission. To have a purposeful mission. And again, we understand from chapter 4, if you read through it, you'll get some of the details that I referred to earlier, but kind of the context of this letter is set in chapter 4. Paul is basically on death row. In essence, this letter is his last will and testament. And he's reflecting on his life and he's passing on to Timothy what really matters. And Timothy had a purposeful mission. Listen to how these first five verses go. He says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Right away, there's this, he makes it very clear. This is a solemn occasion here, Timothy, be prepared. Because in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So not only was this a personal letter with sentimental words, these are solemn words as well. As I said, verse 1, don't t- you know, it, it, he was writing this in a very personal letter, and then he says, okay, Timothy, I'm gonna, about to say something really important. You need to take this very seriously. Don't take this lightly, Timothy. This is important. And it wasn't just on the basis of his name and who wrote it, nor even on the basis of the fact that he was an apostle, but he says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. I mean, he calls God and Jesus Christ witnesses to what he's about to say, and he says, Timothy, preach the word. That was Timothy's mission. And Pastor Ken referred to his ordination service last week, and, and, and that's basically what often happens at an at a, at a ordination service. There's a charge given to the pastor, to the, to the one who's being ordained, who will have the right, if you will, to put reverend in front of his name, which has always been a little disconcerting to me because it just makes me feel old, I guess. But, but, but no offense to anyone else with that. But... <laughs> You know, it's a solemn time. And any pastor who's been in that situation understands that you are given a charge here. You have a mission to accomplish. And you need to be responsible with it. It says, preach the word, be prepared. In other words, be on standby, always be ready. He says, correct. Okay, if there's wrong thinking, you need to correct this. You need to say this is what you need to do. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's times when a rebuke is necessary. Sometimes we become comfortable with sin. You can't do that. But he also says, very interesting there, encourage, right? Again, back to our words and what we use with our words. And we inspire people with courage and with hope. And we do this preaching of the word, he says, with great patience and careful instruction. And why is this important? He says, because... Sound doctrine at times is going to be rejected. He says people will not put up with sound doctrine. They'll look for preachers who are willing to say what their listeners want to hear. But you, Timothy, and us, and 
spite of the movement away from truth, he says, keep your head. Isn't that a great phrase? Just keep your head. It means basically stay focused. You need to think clearly. Because in this day and age, it would be so easy to be knocked off balance. And even for Timothy, maybe as he thought about Paul, his mentor, and the one that he probably loved equally in return, was about to die, it would be easy for him to be knocked off balance. But instead he says, no, Timothy, keep your head, stay focused, endure hardship. There it is again. We may not like it, but it's there. Okay? There's going to be suffering, Timothy. It's going to be, it's going to be hard at times. And probably because Timothy was going to refuse to compromise. There were going to be things that he said that were going to be unpopular. Ultimately, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Share the gospel. And then discharge all the duties of your ministry. Literally, fulfill your ministry. Complete the task. Timothy, Paul says, it matters that you have a purposeful mission. Yours, Timothy, is preaching the word, the Bible, because it really matters too. But for all of us, we need to step back and really ask our question, ourselves a question. What is our purposeful mission? What is our pur- purposeful mission? You see, you are so much more than a parent or a teacher or an engineer or whatever it is you do, but you've been called ultimately to love God and to love people, to be a disciple and to be a discipler, a person who has a passion for the word, who has this purposeful mission that lives an others-orientated life. You see, ultimately, I believe Paul writes this letter to Timothy to encourage him to live a, a passionate and purposeful life. And so if we really want to get to the heart of the matter, we need to ask ourselves the question, it's going to be up here on the screen in a second, what really matters to you? And if you think it's something that really would matter if you had 30 days to live, then why not focus on it now? I'm going to close with just reading this statement by a young African pastor that was found among some of his papers after he was martyred. Listen to how he identified how he was going to live his life. He says, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, Sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean on his presence, walk by faith, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. 
My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear.